was embarrassed about this. It's the first time I've ever admitted this, by the way. And this is like a counseling session for me. I, I, I had this steak knife, but, but all of a sudden, maybe I'd doze off or whatever, and I would have my steak knife there at the couch, and I would hear the garage door open, or, or all of a sudden, Mom and Dad would come in, and I was embarrassed of having the steak knife because I was embarrassed of my fear. So you know what I did? Stuck it down in the cushions. Bad idea. <laughs> Bad idea for the next person on the couch. By the way, we won't go into all of that. But, it, you know, it, it just didn't matter that they said, you don't have anything to be afraid of. When the time came, I was afraid. And honestly, we just need the sermon once. All right. We, all right. We need tools to deal with our fear. We need the right weapons that work. And one of the reasons I keep hovering around this passage is I've realized I need to know what this word says about the right weapons to fight fear. Because it would be all well and good, and I could probably whip up a pretty uh, uh, good sermon on fear not. But really, I want us to see in this word, and I want to learn with you how the church, how Christians fight fear and maintain our joy. Because fear is a joy killer. Lots of joy killers. That is a big one. Fear. And you may say, I'm not really afraid of anything. I, I don't have any fear. Well, great. But there could be a time when all of a sudden you feel all alone, somewhat abandoned. You're there in that big house. And fear comes up unexpected. Here's the thing. We need to learn how to keep our Christian joy ablaze. To keep the fires going. Managing fear is one of the ways. What is the tool that manages our fear? What is the tool? What is the knife that cuts our fear? We need to learn these Christian practices. And I think the book of Philippians is full of them. And the passage we're going to look at today and again next week helps us to see some of these practices. So I want you to gain knowledge. But listen, you can have all the knowledge in the world and not practice these things. And it does no good. So we need the knowledge. And then we need to practice what we learn from this book. Chasing joy should be one of the main pursuits of our Christian lives. Chasing joy. Fighting for faith which produces joy. The Bible teaches us how to chase after a lasting, abiding joy, especially in the book of Philippians. I heard it once said that uh, uh, books don't change people's lives. Ideas do. Sentences do. And so I come to Philippians 1, and I've just been digging around over and over again to say, I think there is more here. There are some sentences and statements that as I pass through them, I go, honestly, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure how to apply that. I'm not sure how to preach about that. And so I've just tried to stay there and ask the Lord to help me. I want us to read and study closely and not skip over some things that might truly revolutionize our faith and keep the fires ablaze. Maybe it is in some of these hard-to-understand passages. They're a little bit craggy and rocky, but underneath the rocks, if we'll dig and fight and patiently study and examine them, maybe there are life-changing treasures and gems and jewels 
and veins of gold under there. I believe that. And I think we left off at a place like that last week, Philippians 1, verse 25. We read verses 25 and 6, but that's what we're going to pick up again this week and not get as far, honestly, as I had hoped to. I'd hoped to be through Philippians chapter 1 about three or four weeks ago. But I just think there's some stuff here, if nothing else, for me, but I know for many of you as well. You will need this. You'll need to apply this. But it's a hard, it's hard digging in this passage. I, I've got a headache this morning just from thinking about this passage all week. Interpretive challenges in this passage. Verse 26, depending on what translation you're using, that's one of the reasons I mentioned which one I'm using. If you just read across the common four or five English translations, there are some interpretive challenges. And, and, and your uh, translation of the Bible may read quite a bit different in that verse than the one that I'm reading. But I know there's truth here. I, I know there's something there that we need to see. So some interpretive challenges. Another thing, I'll just be honest, some of the things that are abundantly crystal clear in this passage we just find difficult to think about to even apply for instance i'll give you one out of verse 27 and we're going to read it here in just a minute in verse 27 paul writes he tells the the church at philippi the christians to live a life worthy of the gospel of christ just that and that is the really a key heading of this passage to live a life worthy of the gospel of christ to some people, that would sound like works-based salvations. You mean, you mean I'm supposed to earn? I'm supposed to be worthy of my salvation? And so we, we might tend to uh, write that off. Or just the fact that if we understand it aright, which is to say, as a Christian, your life should display the worth and the value and the beauty of Jesus Christ to everyone around you. Honestly, we go, mm, I'm not sure my life does that. Actually, if I'm honest, we might say that when people look into our lives and hear our words and see our social media accounts, it could be that they don't even see Christ at all, but they see other things that we have placed at the forefront of our life. So maybe we're not living that way and we're challenged by it. Another one, verse 28. Here's what he says. Don't be frightened in anything or don't be frightened in any way. Same way. My dad tells me, don't be scared. I'll be back. <laughs> I'm frightened. And so it doesn't really help us if someone says, don't be frightened in any, in any way unless they give us some tools to manage our fear. All right? And then another challenge of this passage, Paul tells the Philippian Christians that they're to view suffering for their faith as a gift that has been granted from God. To view your suffering in the faith as a gift that has been given to you and granted to you by God. And for some people, that's absolute heresy. To think that God would give us or grant us suffering, much less to think about it as being something that's a good gift. And so, some difficulties in this passage. Now let's read it together. And then we'll walk through it piece by piece, idea by idea. He says, convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your pride in Christ Jesus may be abundant because of me by my coming to you again. 
Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and this too from God." For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. If you would, go ahead and put up our first slide. And as I said, I've been all over the place with this uh, passage, but I'm going to give you a thesis or a summary of what I think is the main teaching of this passage I'm going to give it to you. You can write it down. You can not write it down. But I just want to be clear. I try to always do this. What do I think this passage says ultimately? And this is what I think it says. And then we're going to break it down sentence by sentence. And that's going to be the main points of the message today. So here is my thesis. Here is the summary that I think captures the heart of this passage. And it's this. Tenacious joy is the fruit of a confident faith in Christ. Christians are called to display the worth of Christ by striving together to help each other achieve tenacious joy in the faith. Tenacious joy does not wither in the face of anti-Christian opposition, and it serves as both a sign of salvation and destruction. So let's go to the next slide, and let's take it. Here is point one, and I'll show you where I get this and it is that tenacious joy is the fruit of a confident faith in Christ and the gospel. Tenacious joy. I'm thinking about trademarking that, by the way. I did, my wife asked me, did, are you plagiarizing your sermon this week? I said, no, I did it last week. Not this week. Not really. Tenacious joy. But I can't take all of the credit for it because I think that the book of Philippians is about joy. This is about joy that fuels our Christian life. And I was reading a commentary about it, about some of the words used here. And the guy says, one of the clear things that comes out of this passage is we see that Paul says, man, Christians ought to have tenacity. Tenacity, grit, toughness. That their joy does not ebb and flow, but that it remains at a high level no matter what. There is a tenacity. And so I came up with this idea of tenacious joy as being the fruit of a confident faith in Christ. We saw last week that Paul says in verse 25, you know, I'm going to come to you. And, and what I see happening when I come to you is that I'm going to help you in your progress and joy in the faith. And then in verse 26, a very interesting phrase that, again, is, is twisted around in different translations. But he says, so that your proud confidence or boasting or glorying may be in Jesus Christ. Or that I may help you. And here's what I think he's saying. You know, you, you're going to be so proud and confident in Jesus. If you see me get out of jail and I come to you, but I want to make sure that your confidence is not in Paul the apostle, but that you have this confidence in the goodness and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and in the Greek, there's a word. It's called kalkema. Say that. Say, kalkema. Turn to your neighbor and say, say kalkema. Kalkema. Not, not cow came up to the fence. Cow came or cow came. And interestingly, that word is one of the strongest words used for joy. That you actually have a joy that 
produces in you a proud confidence. He says a boasting, or it's translated, I think, in the ESV as, as glorying. That you have such a confidence in Jesus that your main boast in life, that the thing that you are the most confident about is about Jesus and his care and his watch over you, that he has you no matter what this life brings and what the next life brings you have Christ. It is a joy of a higher degree than normal. It's not the average run-of-the-mill joy. It's kakema. It is a proud confidence and glorying in Christ. And Paul wants the Philippian Christians to have that. We need that, this high degree of joy. He wants them to reach the place in their faith that they are not shaken and unstable and blown around by their circumstances. He wants them to have what he has, what a mature Christian should have, and that is a proud confidence, a full pride in being with Jesus. That the greatest thing that we can have is to be associated with Jesus Christ and his people. That is what I'm calling tenacious joy. It's not an individualistic pursuit. For Paul says, I need to come to you. I want to help you get this. We need others in our lives pushing us towards this, modeling it for us, helping us in the pursuit of grabbing a hold of a tenacious joy. Hey, guess what? Even Paul, who was a very mature Christian, was not ashamed to write at various points, I need you. I need you to pray for me. He writes in the beginning of the book of Romans, I long to come to you so that I could impart a spiritual gift to you and you to me, that I may be built up by God working through you in my life. So tenacious joy is the fruit of a confident faith in Christ, but it's not an individualistic pursuit. That brings us to the next slide and the next main point here specifically out of verse 27, and that is that Christians are called to display the worth of Christ by striving together to help each other achieve tenacious joy in the faith. In other words, tenacious joy doesn't come from being left alone. It comes in the presence of others, people that help us to see Christ and to look to Christ. The beginning of verse 27, Paul writes this, Look, whether I come to you or not, what I need to know is, what I want to hear from you is, uh, the reports that come from Philippi need to say this, that, man, they are living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their lives are adorning Jesus, making Jesus look big and everything else look small, making Jesus look valuable and everything else as really not worth much. So Paul says, it's not in my coming to you. You need to run after this. You need to find this in your church, whether I come to you or not. Conduct yourself. Live your life as citizens of heaven, whether I'm there or not. And here's what we have to assume by this word. Now listen, verse 27 begins the heart of the passage, or uh, the heart of the teaching of Philippians. It goes all the way through 2.18. That is the heart, the main teaching of the book. There's a lot of preliminaries. Paul is talking about his own uh, life and example. But he's saying to them, now what you have seen in me, what you see happening to me even now, this needs to be yours. And then he repeats it in chapter 3, and then he closes out with some parting words. All important, but listen, this is the heart. Don't miss this. That, this is why we need to spend some time here. 
We must assume from these words that they were living a substandard Christian life. They were not living their lives. It was not a church that was glorifying Christ. They were not living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Substandard Christianity. And that's not the way we're to live. Our job description is to glorify Christ, to know him and make him known. And I think they're on the brink of crumbling. They think their biggest problem is they don't have a strong leader named the Apostle Paul. Paul says, you know, what you need is Jesus front and center. And you need to align your lives and live in such a way that you make him look big and beautiful to everyone who is watching. It's difficult to say for sure what the particular problems in Philippi that are being addressed are. But at the beginning of verse 27, he calls her attention. It's almost like a teacher who snaps their fingers or slaps the ruler or something like this. He says, only. He says, or above all. If you didn't catch the early part of it, make sure that you get this, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. There's a serious tone to it. There's an exhortation here. I think the church is in a mess, and they need to get this. They need to see it. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us wondering what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. He gives some very specific things to the Philippian church, and I think that we need to hear it as a church, and then we need to hear it individually as well. What does conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ look like? Well, the first thing he says, verse 27, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. One man said it is unity marked by commitment. What's he calling them to? Stand firm. That's commitment. Plant your feet. Stand your ground. Don't crumble up in the fetal position, in the couch, with your steak knife. No, stand firm. Plant your feet together like a stone wall with many courses and be committed. You know, if we just turn this phrase inside out and we scratch our head and say, what is going on in Philippi? Now, again, it's speculation. But if we turn it inside out and say, what were they doing? What was church like? church life like in Philippi? Well, obviously, probably disunity. They were not of one accord. They were not unified. Well, when you get a lot of people together that aren't unified, what comes with that? Bickering, grumbling, backbiting, factions. And when that becomes the culture of a church... Then there's crankiness because fear begins to creep in because we wonder whose vision is going to take hold. Who's going to steer the ship? Meanness. Probably some that were very strongly opinionated. And all of that is going on. And maybe someone isn't getting their way. And so what do they do? They, they flake out. I'm out. Didn't go my way. They're flighty. They're flaky. They're fickle. Because they don't know how to stand together with one mind in one spirit. And I'll tell you, when that takes hold in a church or any organization, people start to panic. And it produces anxiety and fear and dread. 
I think as I turn that phrase inside out to look at what might have been going on, I think that's what's going on. We don't have to totally guess. There's some things later in the book that tell us. But he says what you need to do is stand firm. Be committed. Plant your feet. Be ready to weather the storms, to take the criticisms and the disagreements. It's all right. Be committed. Not just to First Baptist Church of Philippi. Be committed to one another. Be of one mind. You know what, what it takes to become of one mind where you have a hundred people? Discussion. Give and take. Compromise. It takes some of that. And it's okay if someone disagrees. We need to learn to talk it out and walk it out so that we can stand firm in one spirit and one mind. And I think it takes a long time to become of one mind. I've been married for uh, 20 some odd years. And I'll tell you, uh, we're a lot more of one mind than we used to be, but we're not always immediately of one mind. In fact, it's almost a sure thing that on any given situation, we're going to be of two different minds. We're polar opposites, my wife and I. But yet, because of our commitment together to each other, to the marriage, to our family, we're able to talk it out. And she always wins. Um, anyway, <laughs> no. There's give and take on both ends. When the other gets their way, we make sure they know, you know, we're giving in because we value you, but we become of one mind. And Paul says, man, hey, church, life out there in Philippi is hard enough without coming to church and always expecting a fight. Be of one mind, one spirit, unified, committed, to the cause of Christ and the place where you find yourself. One mind. Striving for the faith of the gospel. That's the next thing. He says in this passage, striving for the faith of the gospel. So, in other words, he calls them back to the vision, the mission, the main thing. Because probably they've lost sight of that. Again, we turn it inside out and we say, what happens in the church? What happens in a church when they lose sight of the vision and the mission? You start majoring on the minors. Something lesser than the main thing becomes the main thing for some people. And then everybody has a different main thing. And we start being pulled in all different directions. That's what happens. And I think they've lost sight of what they're doing there in church. He says, get back to striving for the faith of the gospel. The thing that repels fear. The thing that casts out fear. In the Christian life and in the church. Among the people and keeps the fires of joy burning. Keeps the wood burning hot. The thing that repels fear. Is not a steak knife. It's faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's the faith. It's contending for the faith. And so Paul says, man, get your eyes on Jesus. Remember what the church is all about, that we're in this together, that God has placed us with people that are totally different from us, 
for our good because they see things and they know things and they're gifted in ways that we're not. And they help build us up in the faith. And sometimes what they say and do hurts and stings, but it grows us. It grows us. Keep the faith. The faith of Jesus, the faith in Jesus as the main thing. Our goal in coming to church, here's what it should be. Living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're living a life together that exalts Jesus. How does that happen? We build one another up in the most holy faith. That's what we're supposed to do when we come to church. That's what should be happening. That we're bolstering and building up one another. And then we're also on mission going out and bringing other people into the faith. That other people might know Jesus and might move from death to life and come to have eternal life. They've lost their vision, I think. They've lost their focus. And he says, get back with one mind striving for the faith. Striving. It, it really, the picture here is an athletic team that's working together like a well-practiced, well-oiled machine that knows that's our goal line. That's our goal. That's what we're trying to do, and we're working together. There's not, not one hot dog on the team that's doing it all. It's us working together, pulling in the same direction with one mind, striving for one faith, helping one another to lift up Jesus, to keep our eyes on Jesus, confident faith. That's what we want to build is this confident faith. So tenacious joy on your bulletin cover, it'll say... Tenacious joy is the fruit of confident faith in Christ. We're here to help one another grow in our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. All right? Last slide. Last thing. This is verses 28 through 30. Again, part of my summary. What's it teaching us here? And here's a key thing. Tenacious joy does not wither in the face of anti-Christian opposition. Instead... Tenacious joy in the face of anti-Christian opposition is a sign. It serves a purpose. It is a sign of both our salvation and the destruction of those who oppose the work of Jesus. So what he says is, listen. And we're going to come back to this because I think this deserves a whole sermon of its own. We're going to come back to this next week and just focus on this one idea unless it gets blown up again and I have to do two or three. But my goal is to come back to this. But I want you to hear it today. That we're talking about the kind of joy that is so sturdy that even in the face of clear, dangerous opposition that hates Jesus and hates us because of our love for Jesus, we are not afraid in any way. So tenacious joy doesn't wither in the face of opposition. I saw a little video clip of one of these ultimate fighter guys. I'll just tell you who it is, Brock Lesnar. You guys know who that is? Any of you guys watch UFC? That's all right. You can admit it in church. I don't think he's anti-Christian. Totally. So there's this big old muscular dude, Brock Lesnar, who has whipped about everybody and everything in UFC. And I saw this little clip. And there was this guy that came into the ring. He looked like part man, part machine. He was wicked looking. Bowed up, muscular. It was the first time I ever saw Brock Lesnar look really afraid. And I watched for part of a round as he, this guy that probably weighs 350 pounds. Y'all were like, my preacher watches UFC. No, 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 it's just a clip that came up. 
Brock Lesnar is running from this dude. And I was like, man, fear in the face of a bigger opponent. And, you know, that's how we manage fear so many times is just go, well, if I'm bigger and more muscular and scarier, more powerful, have a louder voice, no fear. I'm going to whip them. What happens when you come up against a bigger opponent? More people. How many of y'all saw this clip floating around the news this week of that guy who broke into Nancy and Paul Pelosi's house? Did did y'all see that? This crazy guy, and he comes in with a hammer. And there's actually body cam footage of it. And it's the weirdest thing ever. And I'm watching that, and here's this guy with a hammer. And thankfully, they end up behind a door, but the guy ends up taking the hammer. And y'all know the story. The guy, Paul Pelosi, lives. But you watch that, and it is chilling. You go, man, that's why I carried a steak knife. It's guys like that. Seriously. Here is the Speaker of the House. And this crazy guy gets access and gets a hammer. I don't know how he got the hammer. And he takes it and he bludgeons this guy. Sin chills up your spine. And I think that it would be very possible to come in a passage like this and just go, man, don't fear. And if you're pretty tough and strong and whatever, and you go, yeah, I don't have any fear. But what about? In that situation. And I think that's the kind of situation that the Philippians were facing. Being threatened with their very lives. By people who were angry and armed. And hated them because of their association with Jesus. So it's easy to be tough in some situations. But when you face a big armed opponent. And that's what they were facing. And then Paul writes. Don't be fearful in any of that. Don't be frightened in any way. That's the kind of tenacious joy that we can have. We can have it. It's ours. We need the knowledge and we need to practice these things. One of the greatest, most rampant um, plagues running through society today is anxiety. I've struggled with it. I'll tell you what, I think anxiety is just a a breed or a variety of of fear. That's what it is. And so often, we don't even know where it's coming from. And it comes on us by total surprise. And then sometimes, we just face big daunting things, and we know exactly where our fear comes from. But we have to admit that fear is in and all around us. And the Bible is giving us some things They're going to help us to maintain our joy and fight against the kind of fear that paralyzes and plagues. And it's real. It's real. One of the key pastoral duties, I heard this years ago when I was a brand new pastor. And here's what this old sage pastor said. One of the key duties of every Christian pastor is to prepare your people for suffering. Prepare your people to suffer well. I've never forgotten that. I think that's what this passage is trying to teach us. How to come to a daunting and otherwise fearful situation 
or maybe lifestyle or maybe a decade that is going to be full of daunting things and how to maintain your Christian faith and joy. How many of you would admit today, I face fear, I, I feel fear every day. If you're honest, how many of you? Any, anybody? Now certainly my goal is not to instill new fears in you through this. But I do think one of the things we have to say is we have to be honest and admit that there are things that we're afraid of. There are places where we've placed our security, we've built our lives towards a goal that maybe is a shaky, shifting foundation. And when that becomes threatened, where that thing that occupies the lead seat in our lives becomes threatened, all of a sudden, fear comes out of nowhere and makes us do things and say things and act in ways that we normally wouldn't act. But we need to be able to see those things. What are the threats that are causing us fear? Again, one of the hard things about preaching this passage is we're not right now in a day and time and place like the Philippian church. I doubt any of you had your life threatened because of your faith this week. But you might have had your popularity threatened. Maybe your social media accounts or maybe your job if you speak up about Jesus. That That's very possible. And so all sorts of fears that might well up in our hearts. And I tell you, I have been literally at times paralyzed by fear. I, I normally like to put on a facade of being confident and happy and joyful and whatever. But if I'm honest, I would just tell you. I, I can look back all the way back to those days of childhood. And all the way up to this day. And saying there are things that I worry about being taken from me. And then I get paralyzed. And in this cycle. So fear is a robber. It can be a killer. But it doesn't have to be. Faith in Christ can overcome your fears. Would you bow with me today? As we bring our message to a close and our thoughts on this, I think it's, maybe it's just good to Ask the Lord in these moments to help shine the spotlight in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls. To shine the spotlight on the areas where fear might come and threaten and take over our lives. Let's ask him in this moment to do that. Lord, would you Search us and try us. Sweep through the hidden places of our minds, the crevices and the memories and the thoughts and the values and the priorities and show us. Show us where fear may be residing in the shadows. Lord, we pray that you would not just show us our fears, but show us the root of them. The things that we're trusting in or leaning too much upon. The things that are occupying the worthy places. The places that we 
but value. And Lord, I pray that the light of Christ, the light of Jesus who came and died for us, to provide forgiveness of all of our sins and failures. Pray that the light of Christ, who is the Christ who rose from the dead, overcame death and the grave. I pray that that light would now shine, that you would shine it in these places. Let the glory of Christ, the glory of the good news of the gospel in our eternal life, let it shine in these hidden places where fear lurks. God, as we look to Jesus today, as we look upon His face, as we look upon the One who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, strengthen our faith, we pray. Prepare us for the day of battle that awaits. Lord, our prayer today is for a strong and abiding faith that produces this unquenchable joy, this tough and gritty, persevering gladness that can weather the storm. Work in our hearts today, Lord. God, help us as a church, as individual Christians who come together and associate with one another. Help us to be about building up one another. Not hampering faith, but building up one another in the most holy faith. Lord, help us to be a shining light in a dark world. Help us to be full of love and joy that is really, truly supernatural, that comes from a place of confident trust in Jesus, not just when times are good, but when times are difficult, when times of suffering come. Help us. Walk with us in the fire. Give us your light. Give us your life. Let your light and life shine through us, Lord. Build us up as only you can do as we believe and trust in you today. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, thank you for your attention today. Let me, let me challenge you to do something. Philippians chapter 1. Last time I gave you one verse. This week, prayerfully meditate on Philippians 1, 25 through 30. You know what? The Lord may show you some beautiful things and apply them in beautiful ways specifically in your life. I think that that is the promise of the Bible, that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It is the tool that God uses to shape us and help us and cut away things that don't need to be there. Philippians 1, 25 through 30, a beautiful passage. Meditate on that with me this week. And uh, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to finish up Philippians chapter 1 next Sunday. Right. Hey, hey, let me ask you this. Has Philippians 1 been a blessing to you in any way? I, I believe it has for many people. I've heard from some, and uh, I, think that, uh, I think it will be if we take it seriously. Thank you for being here today. I pray that your uh, power stays on. 
that your water flows freely, and that you learn the final art of joy, tenacious joy. You're dismissed.